Well, church, I would invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 4. As we draw to a close in the book of Philippians, we have one more sermon, as I mentioned, after this one. And we will be finished with the book. I'm just reflecting on all of the things that we've learned and been able to, to observe. Um, I've attempted to provide these, these simple tools, the Trenton Family Guides, that you're able to get through email. We also have some here if you'd like to grab one on the way out at the, each offering plate. But um, I'm just reminded that um, it would be possible for our kids to have like a, a memorable phrase from each sermon that we've, that we've gone through. Um, and so hopefully these things have been a helpful tool. Um, today I'm, I'm, uh, we're looking at, at a passage of Scripture that's incredibly, incredibly practical. Uh, just as last week's passage was, today we read Philippians 4, 8, and 9. I want to ask you to read along with me. Philippians chapter 4. Verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things and what you have learned and have received and have heard and seen in me practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is an incredibly interesting way to phrase things because remember what Paul said last week when he said take basically take your worries and your fears to God and the peace of God will be with you. And now he says, think on what is true, and the God of peace will be with you. It's an interesting little bookend to these two little things. He's, he's telling us the way that we can live in the peace of God. Last week, remember that God is here, that he's near, and that he's real. Act in a reasonable way. And what, what does it mean to be reasonable? It means to act as if God is real. That's the only reasonable way to, to walk through life is to agree that God is here and He's real and He's returning. And a certain kind of life grows out of that soil. It's the only reasonable way to live. And today He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, these are the things that we are to, to train our minds on. It requires that we have to have a little bit of discernment. We have to be able to, to know what is true. We have to be able to discern what is pure, what is right, what is just, in order to live out of them. Friends, I have a fear. My fear is that the church in the United States of America is more focused on living out of pragmatism or living out of just, just what works or what seems right it seems like we're tempted to, to, to glean our ideas of what is true and right and noble and moral from the culture more than from the scriptures. And this is dangerous. This is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Last week we considered the question, 
That the question is not whether or not we're theologians. Everyone in the room is a theologian. Why? Because everyone in the room has a set of beliefs about who God is and what he's like. The only question is, does our idea of who God is and what he's like match up with God's ideas revealed in the scriptures of who he is and what he's like? And we said that that some things grow out of this soil, that, that the way that you live grows out of your theology. So the better doctrine, the more pure doctrine, the better theology you have, the better pattern of life and obedience to God you will have. Actions come from beliefs. The soil of what you believe produces a kind of life. And we said if you're constantly worried, it could be because you think of God as weak, uncaring, distant. If you're constantly guilty, it could be because you've never really understood the the depth of the forgiveness that Jesus offers in the gospel. You're, you're living out of another gospel plus something kind of orientation. If you're, if you're an unforgiving person, we said it could be that you don't understand the gospel yourself and how grievously your sin against God is and how he's forgiven you from that. If you're perpetually angry or bitter, it could be because if you, you think of God as some kind of angry grandfather with a furrowed brow, always seeking to come after you. He's, he's, he's done you wrong. He's been unjust to you some way. And so out of that doctrine, you, you live kind of an angry or bitter life because you've been shortchanged by God somehow. Today it seems that the, the passage, the Scripture, gets even more practical. And here's the truth. If you don't hear anything else I say today, this is what I have in bold on my paper. The philosophies you believe, the catchphrases that you live by, the mantras that you repeat in your mind, and the gospels that you preach to yourself throughout the day, little g gospels, the gospels that you preach to yourself, they will determine your pattern of life. And so I've entitled the sermon, Live Not By Lies. In 1974, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who's a Russian intellectual living in the Soviet Union, he had incited the ire of the Soviet Union. And as a matter of fact, uh, one spring day or, or early or, or late winter day, um, the, the secret police came and abducted him from his, um, from his uh, house and extradited him to West Germany. They wanted to exile him from the country. I'm sure he didn't really mind living in the Soviet Union in 1974, being sent to West Germany. But anyway, that's what they did. And the very day that they came and picked him up, from his house, he wrote an essay that began to circulate among the the smart people, the intelligentsia in Moscow and and throughout the Soviet Union. And his his essay was entitled, Live Not By Lies. In it, he detailed the the list of of social and moral ills that that were contributing to his country's downfall and his country's unraveling. And and he settled on this one conclusion, that the the one action that everybody, no matter whether they were weak or strong, no matter whether they were powerful or just a peasant, the one action that everyone could do that that could begin to pull that string in the garment and unravel all of the bad stuff that was happening in his country, the one thing that everyone had the ability to do was to not participate in lies. And so he wrote this Essay, live not by lies. He's telling people, do not live by them. Do not allow them to have power over you. And today we read, it's an illustration for what we read today. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, think on these things. 
Friends, I've got to be honest with you. I'm burdened over the content of this sermon, over what I see in the text and the applications that I'm going to draw. My heart is heavy over the things that that I'm going to preach about today. Heavy in a good way, burdened in a good way. So I need to preface this sermon with a couple of comments so that you don't get the wrong idea. This is one of the awkwardnesses of, of the way that I preach going through a book, verse at a time. When you come across a certain passage, you draw certain applications. It might seem like I'm I'm saying something, making veiled references that I'm really not making. So there may be some points in this sermon where it might seem, you might wonder in your mind, is he talking about the election? No, I'm not talking about the election. There might be some times in the sermon where you might wonder, is he talking about COVID-19? I'm not talking about COVID-19. Okay, I'm just going to ask you to trust me. I'm talking about themes that were present in our culture and in our churches in the United States long before this day ever came, long before I ever thought about this sermon or, or this passage came up in our regular reading through the book of Philippians. There are things that are present in our culture and that are ravaging our churches that have been here long before this moment and I fear will persist long after. So today... We want to look at this one thing, living not by lies. In 2005, sociologist Christian Smith wrote a book. It's called Soul Searching. And um, he was writing about the beliefs of the rising generation of young people in America. What do America's youth believe in 2005? Uh, In 2005, I was uh, was 15 and 16. And so I guess he's kind of talking about me. And I guess he's kind of talking about my generation. I hope he's not talking about me, but certainly my generation. And he determined that the youth in America who go to church, who attend a youth group, he found that by and large they really don't believe Christianity. What they believe, he used three words, moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Okay, those are three big words. I'm going to break them down. But he said, basically, the rising generation in America doesn't believe Christianity. They believe moralistic, therapeutic deism. Well, what is deism? It's a general belief in a God. Kind of the the store brand God. He's kind of distant. He doesn't reveal himself. There's nothing you can really know about him. And he certainly doesn't make any demands on your life. He's just kind of God out there. And we get to kind of project onto him whatever we want to. We get to think of him however we like to. He hasn't spoken. He's left us in the dark. He's distant. He's put us here. We don't really know who he is. Deism. Deism. Moralistic. Moralistic is just a general belief that we ought to be good people. And the catch is we get to define what is good. Because this deistic God who's far away, because he hasn't really spoken, because he's kind of left us in the dark, we get to determine what is good because he hasn't spoken. He hasn't told us what's good. And he's certainly not made any demands on our lives. On our lives. So moralistic. Generally be a good person who generally believes in some generic God somewhere out there. And then therapeutic. The belief that God essentially exists for our happiness and our comfort. Now I do believe that the gospel brings comfort. Don't get me wrong. But this idea that God exists for us. That we're the center of the universe and God kind of revolves around us. Is so American that it's almost hard to quantify. It's more American than biblical. And he said this moralistic, therapeutic deism is what's 
is what's percolating in the hearts of the rising youths in America, and it's taking over what we believe about God. Friends, our culture is secularizing. It's, it's growing more and more accustomed to believing that there is no God. And what I'm afraid of is that the heat is going to be turned up on believers, and that more scrutiny is going to be placed on the orthodox traditional Christian belief In the days and the years and the decades to come, what I'm afraid of is that if we don't have a fortress-grade theology, if we don't have a weapons-grade understanding of how we're going to disciple the next generation, then we will not persevere. Friends, we cannot live by lies. We have to come to the Scriptures. We have to look at them. We have to train our children in what they mean. And we have to live as if it's really real. Or else our children will grow up and they'll see that mom and dad didn't think that it was real enough to make any sacrifices for. So I guess that I don't need to either. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. I'm afraid is what is ravaging our churches. It's what's ravaging our marriages. And it's what's causing our kids to grow up, leave for college, and determine that they can get the same weak religion somewhere else without having to make the sacrifice. So what do we do? We return to the gospel. We return to the scriptures. We look to them so that we may live not by lies. And if we're able to produce this kind of fortress-grade theology. It'll be able to withstand the attacks of the culture and withstand the attacks of the enemy. Here's the reason that I'm talking about these things. I'm trying to make this application from this passage. The reason is because from where I sit... And from the things that I read and the things that are pushed out to pastors to let them know about what's happening, the demographic trends that are occurring in in what people believe in the United States, and many times the passion with which they believe it, the religious zeal with which they believe it, I'm afraid when I look out to our churches across this land, this is not a sermon about Trenton Baptist Church, it's a sermon about the church in the United States is that even now, believers neglect church, believers neglect sacrifice, believers neglect making disciples, giving basic obedience the moment it becomes inconvenient or uncomfortable. And what I'm afraid of is that these people, when the heat is turned up, and when we really are required to make sacrifices for the things that we believe, that these people will not persevere. I'm afraid that we have got to create a weapons-grade, fortress-grade plan for discipling the next generation if we want to live. Here's the first point from verse 8. It says this. Change your scorecard. I want to read verse 8 one more time just to put it back on our radar. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Friends, we have to change our scorecard. No longer can we allow the mindset of our favorite Netflix documentary to influence how we view our lives and our problems more than we allow the scriptures to speak into our lives 
and problems. We have to be able to change our scorecard. 1964, season two, or perhaps 1963, season two of the Andy Griffith Show. You might be noticing a pattern in some of my illustrations. There's an episode called The Clubman. In this episode, a friend of Andy, a friend of Andy's comes to Mayberry and they go hunting. His name is Roger Courtney. And at the end of their little hunting trip, they get back to the sheriff's office and and he says to Andy, you know, you ought to come up to Raleigh. I need to make a comment. When you're in Mount Airy, North Carolina, you don't go up to Raleigh. Okay, you go down to Raleigh. It's it's down east, right? Everything that way is down east. Anyway, I can't believe Andy allowed them to do that in the show. He said, why don't you come up to Raleigh and we'll put you up for membership in our club, the Esquire Club. Maybe you remember this episode. And Andy said, well, that would be fine. And he he says to Roger, he said, you know, I do have a deputy, though. It would be kind of hard for me to take off and, and go down or go up to Raleigh, go down to Raleigh and not bring him. And the man says, well, if, if he's your deputy, then that's good enough for me. Why don't you just bring him along and we'll put him up for membership too. And, of course, you can already know what's going to happen. <laughs> Barney's going to go down there with Andy and he's going to embarrass the mess out of both of them. And, and the whole night, it's just one big show of Barney embarrassing himself in front of these really genteel men who have these big jobs and, and all this stuff. And at one point, at one point, Barney so embarrasses himself because these two men are talking about golf. And one of them, Barney asks one of them, he says, Whoa, you play golf? What, what, how do you play? What do you shoot? He says, I usually shoot in the low 80s. And he said, well, what about you to this other man? And the man said, I usually shoot up in the high 90s. And he said, wait a second, you should be giving him lessons because maybe then if he gets better, he'll be shooting way up in the 90s or even up into the hundreds. And everybody just kind of looks around at one another like this. This fool doesn't know that a high score in golf is bad. The point is this. If your scorecard is off, if the way that you're evaluating truth, the way you're evaluating your life is twisted, then, the, then it's not going to go well for you. Here, here's the cash value of what I'm saying. We have to be intentional. We have to be intentional about believing truth, about believing the right things about life and God. Why? Because our culture is competing for market share of your brain. The culture is competing for a market share of what you believe and of your value system about how you view the world. The temptation will be to live by those lies instead of interpreting everything, every problem, every situation through the lens of Christ. And so here are four questions I put together just real quickly about how do we weigh out a decision or a belief. Number one goes like this. Does it, believe, does it agree with the Word of God? Does it agree with the Word of God? Friends, this is why I've, I've tried to set forth four points about who we should be as a church. And one of, one of them is word-focused. Here's why. It's what it says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Friends, the word is enough. It's sufficient through it. God has granted to us everything that we need for life and godliness. And the Bible says of itself, don't go beyond the word. Don't go into speculation. You know there's a reason you call me a preacher and not a speculator. Because all of my speculations and all of my opinions are worth nothing. But the Word of God is what's valuable. The Word of God does the work of God. So does it agree with the Word? Number two, does it push me toward holiness and obedience? 
says this in Philippians 1. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment. So these words, knowledge, discernment. Why? So that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In other words, the point of believing what we believe about God and the gospel and life is so that we can obey Him. And friends, the kind of obedience that is going to be required to live for Jesus in 2020 and 2030 is going to be a costly kind of obedience. It's going to be the kind of obedience that you're going to be willing to make sacrifices for. And my fear is that if our churches look more like moralistic, therapeutic deism, that we're not going to follow Jesus when the heat gets turned up. Number three. Does it align with God's character? Well, this is kind of a trick question. How do we know what aligns with God's character? We see it in the Word. So does it align with God's character as revealed through the Word of God? It says this in 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. You know, when I was in college, I had a situation where I was in the prayer chapel. Our college, a Christian college, I had a prayer chapel. And I had a young man come up to me, and he, and he put his hands on me in the middle of my prayer. And I thought, that's kind of interesting. Here I am at the throne of God, and you just want to interrupt me. You might want to watch out. But he, uh, he kind of interrupted me and he said, I have a word from God for you. All right. Whenever, whenever someone says to me that God has told them something that I ought to do, I always get a little bit nervous. All right. I mean, if you feel like God has told you something that you ought to do, I mean, that's one thing. But if you feel like God has told you something that you ought to go tell somebody else that they ought to do, I get a little leery. Okay. Because of how I understand what the Bible says about how God reveals himself. All right. And so anyway... Here's the point of what I'm saying. We have to be careful when we think God might be speaking to us. Not because God doesn't speak. Clearly, he speaks to his people. But we have to be careful not because there's any problem with the radio station, but because sometimes our receiver is still a Genesis 3 receiver. Our hearts are still broken. Jeremiah 17. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can understand them? We have to be careful. We have to test every test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? For many false prophets have gone out into the world. In other words, we might have a need for discernment. We need to be very suspicious of our own hearts because many times, whatever the heart desires, the mind can justify. Number four, does it make wisdom sense? God has given us a whole genre of scripture called the wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Does it make wisdom sense? All things are lawful for me, it says in 1 Corinthians 10.23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. In other words, does it make wisdom sense? Is it practically wise for us to do this? Even if you could make a case that you ought to believe something or do something, even if you could maybe make a case, is it wise? Does it align with the Proverbs. And then lastly, does it bring glory to God? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Hopefully this, these have given us a few handles about how we ought to change our scorecard as we approach God and His Word and, and listening to Him. But the second point is this. True thinking, remember, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is noble, think on these things. True thinking is better than popular thinking. Thinking what is true is better than thinking what is popular. Here's where we see that also in verse 8. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say whatever will increase your esteem in the eyes of men. He doesn't say whatever seems to work at the moment. He says, no, whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, and of course we read that and we think, of course there's something excellent. Of course there's something worthy of praise. The gospel and the word of God revealed to us through the scriptures. He says, think about these things. There's a battle going on in our culture for our minds. I used the word earlier, market share. Did you know that by the end of the year 2020, which is not all that far away at this point, marketing firms, perhaps this is because it's an election year, perhaps it's because of other things going on, I don't know, marketing firms will have spent $390 billion just to gain some access into your brain. They're not simply wanting you to think a certain way. They're wanting you to want certain things. Do you see how nefarious that is? Do you see how sneaky that is? They're desiring to change your will. The culture wants to change what you want, what you think is good, what you think is moral. Now, we can't fault them for, want to, for wanting them to get you to spend your money at their place as opposed to the other place, to want you to go with Pepsi over Coke. We can't fault them for doing that. But the reality is this. That there's something deeper going on in our culture, and the Bible says that it looks like a prowling lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. That's how the Bible describes Satan. He's seeking to gain access into our minds, seeking to gain access into our wills, seeking to change our scorecard, seeking to change our value system. And friends, if we don't have a fortress-grade theology, if we don't have a fortress-grade understanding of who God is and what He says is good and bad, then friends, it's going to be off to the races. We're going to be down the river just drifting with wherever the winds of the culture are taking us. One One of the ways that the culture, one of the methods that the culture uses to make things seem reasonable and moral and popular to us is by using slogans, is by using um, catchphrases. Let me give you a couple. You do you. Have you heard that one? Somebody say, you do you. You know, it's very popular right now. Here's kind of what the essence of this is. Fulfillment can be found by doing whatever you want. Fulfillment can be found by acting on all of your desires. James Taylor, 1976, Shower the People, he says these words. If it feels nice, don't think twice. You do you. You just be who you want to be. You just be. In other words, there's no claim. God has no claim on who you need to be. You just do you. Here's another one. Listen to your heart. Have you ever heard that one? This is basically the plot of every Hallmark Christmas movie. I give Hallmark Christmas movies a hard time because I have to end up watching them all. Yeah, you know, and they all use the same plot, right? They haven't written a new script in ten years. You know how it is. You know, there's a, there's a young lady and she's single, but she's, she's engaged to somebody and her dad owns something big and they live in the town. And the, and the guy she's engaged to, he drives a nice car and he's got the great job. There's every reason that she ought to love him, but something's wrong and she just can't quite put her finger on it. And then in comes the drifter. Oh, he's a guy, you know, he's a great guy. He's got the facial hair, but he's wounded. Mm. And he comes into town and he's got just what she needs to make her right. 
Listen to your heart. Leave the guy with the big corporate corner office downtown in the porch and go with the drifter with the facial hair. Right? That right there is all they need. They don't ever need to write another script. They just change, they just change the actors and the actresses. And sometimes they don't even do that. Listen to your heart. The religious idea that whatever it is that you desire must be good for you. That's what it says. Whatever it is that crops up in your heart, it must be good. If it feels nice, don't think twice. It's your life, your body, your choice. It's whatever you want to do. And then self. Have you noticed? Now, by the way, you know when I was growing up, it was self-esteem. And then lately it shifted to self-care. But it's so interesting that all the catchphrases always start with the word self. Now, I want you to have self-esteem. I think the Bible wants you to take care of yourself. But it's interesting, isn't it, that our culture is basically telling us that the way to be okay and the way to be made new and the way to be made better is to always do something that starts with self, to be focused on self. The Scriptures, the Gospel, gives a different pattern of life. It says that Jesus died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves. That freedom is actually found in living for Christ and not for living for self. That living for self is actually like being adrift on the sea and drinking the salt water. It gives you the appearance of fixing your problem, but it only causes you to die quicker. That real life is found through Christ and not through self. Positive thinking is another one. It puts the emphasis on just whatever makes you feel better instead of what's true. True thinking is better than popular thinking. True thinking is better than positive thinking. I can think of a lot of things that are positive that aren't true. You know, a friend of mine who's a pastor, he posted a video of himself deadlifting like 400 pounds. Now, I could think that maybe I could do that, and it would be a positive thing for me to believe. But it wouldn't be true. Life is found through believing truth, not through believing just what is popular or positive. This is why we desire to be here, a word-focused church. Because the only way to be doctrinally pure and sound is to be so influenced by the Scriptures, friends, that when the world squeezes you, the Bible comes out. When the world squeezes you, what comes out? Does, Does, like, a lyric from a song you heard... Or like a catchphrase from the culture, you do you, or, or just take you know self-care, whatever. Is that what comes out? Or when the world squeezes you and situations squeeze you, does the Bible come out? The only way to, be so, to, to let the Bible come out when the world and the culture squeezes you is to be so saturated in what the Bible says about life and God that it becomes the very air that you breathe. That you've given your life so over to God that His Word is your life and breath. We need to be so saturated in Scripture and in a biblical worldview because if we aren't, the enemy is going to absolutely tear apart our families, our marriages, our church, and the next generation. Satan has come to fight, and I'm afraid that if we don't have this fortress-grade theology, we're going to be showing up to a street fight with a Nerf gun. We won't know what hit us. Friends, we have to be serious about the gospel. We have to be serious about the Scriptures. This can't be just something we do on the weekends that makes our conscience feel a little bit better. This is not a moralistic, therapeutic deism thing that we're doing here on Sunday mornings at Trenton Baptist Church. What we need to be doing is preparing ourselves to so know God that we will be able to stand when the heat gets turned up. 
And I pray that you would feel the same way. Verse 9. This is our last point. Last point, I've been trying to encourage you to think truly, to get so uh, saturated in the Scriptures that your doctrine is strong, your doctrine is pure. Uh, Everything that I seek to do as a pastor, I'm hoping to encourage that, to push that down the road. But our last point is this. True thinking, while it's important, it isn't enough. True thinking isn't enough. Verse 9. Look what he says here. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. In other words, I could preach this sermon up at a seminary and get a a ton of young 22 and 24 and 26 year old men to agree with me. Because at seminary, everyone believes the right things, right? Not always. (laughs) I can introduce you to a few seminaries that teach the wrong things, but anyway. True thinking isn't enough. I could preach this sermon to a bunch of guys who could, who could agree with what I say, but here's how I know. Here's how you can know. What is the real doctrine? What is the real doctrine that you believe? The real doctrine that you believe is the one that you live. That's how you know. Whatever you have received, whatever you've learned and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. One thing I've learned as a parent, I don't have a ton of anecdotes at this point, but one thing that I have learned from being a parent is that at a very early age, your kids learn to repeat what you tell them to do. They learn to repeat back to you what you've just told them before they learn to do what you've just told them. I can say to my son, Coram, you know, Uh, Would you take your plate to the sink? And he'll say, Coram, take your plate to the sink. But he doesn't take his plate to the sink. Okay? He can parrot back to me the right doctrine. But he's not living the gospel. Right? He's not living the truth that daddy has, has given him. So how do you know what you really believe? You know if you really believe the gospel if you act out of it. If your life is formed around it. If your life is cross shaped. Instead of you shaped. That's how we know what we really believe. It's possible to know all the right answers and still be lost. Just ask the Pharisees. Listen to the words of James as I close. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We're tempted to believe it does. We're tempted to believe that whenever we're angry, God must be on our side. But the the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And here it comes in verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if he is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and, and, and goes away. And at once forgets what he is like. Friends, this is a pattern of life. True thinking and true living. It leads to the life of peace and health. And if we live this way, if we really believe the gospel and live this way, then the God of peace and the peace of God will attend our way in such a way that will give us everything we need to press on when the days get hard. He will be with us. He's promised So, I would encourage you, press on. Today's sermon in 15 seconds or less, think what is true. To find what is true, go to the Scriptures. 
And whatever you do, don't stop there. Live out of what is true. And it is only by this, by having a weapons-grade doctrine and a weapons-grade, fortress-grade pattern of life and a plan for discipling the next generation and doing family discipleship and, and making things happen on the granular level, it's only through this that we will be able to stand against the sands of our culture that stand as... First uh, Corinthians calls, Second Corinthians calls arguments raised against the knowledge of God. Friends, I pray that we would stand in what is true and live not by lies. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for the attentiveness of our people and their humility to hear uh, this this message and to listen to the scriptures. I pray, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would purify us and sanctify us. Would you make us who we need to be? I pray that you would, that you would even now, in between the pews and in the seats up in, up in the fellowship hall, be planting a seed in the hearts of people who, who would think to themselves, you know what, I see the danger, I see the problems that our culture is facing, I see the world that my kids are going to grow up in, it's time for me to get serious. What can I do, Pastor Greg? What can we do, church, about being intentional about making disciples of the next generation? How can we shore up our institutions? How can we prepare ourselves to know Jesus so deeply that we're willing to not only be inconvenienced, but to make sacrifices because we look out and nothing is worth Him? No house, no truck, no boat, no job, no vacation, nothing. No retirement, no kind of lifestyle is worth Him and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be such a church. God, would you do your work in us? And as we respond to you now, help us, God, to respond in the way that you are leading. pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.